so you know, last week, Johnny gave a message on some challenging topics, adultery, marriage, and divorce. And today, uh, he'll be preaching to us about our word and m- making oaths. And in some ways, last week's sermon is prophetic to some difficult family business that we need to conduct this morning. And as many of you know, Shalford Church has been associated with the Southern Baptist Convention for over 30 years. Since our beginning as a church plant in 1986, we've been supported in various ways by the SBC and SBC churches. The church was planted via a collaboration between First Baptist Newman, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, Piedmont Church, and the Noonday Baptist Association. Our property and our building were financed by Noonday and the Georgia Baptist Association. Baptist churches and the Noonday Association have supported Shalford through various pastoral transitions, culminating in a 2013 transition where Shalford became a campus of First Baptist Church of Woodstock. In turn, we have contributed to the work of the SBC through regular financial support, especially our participation in the Lottie Moon Annual Christmas Missions Offering. During recent years, there's been a growing concern within Southern Baptist churches about SBC's leadership handling of sexual abuse within the church, culminating in the 2021 Nashville Convention with the approval of a task force to supervise an independent investigation in the SBC Executive Committee handling of sexual abuse investigations. The motion called for an inquiry in actions and decisions of the Executive Committee and staff members from January 1st, 2000 to June 14th, 2021 with respect to allegations of abuse, handling of abuse, mistreatment of victims or advocates, and resistance to sexual reform initiatives. Sadly, the report released on May 15th included the following paragraph. Quote, during our investigation, an SBC pastor and his wife came forward to report that SBC President Johnny Hunt had sexually assaulted the wife on July 25th, 2010. We include this sexual assault allegation in the report because our investigators found the pastor and his wife to be credible The report was corroborated in part by a counseling minister and three other credible witnesses, and our investigators did not find Dr. Hunt's statements related to the allegation to be credible. While Dr. Hunt has disputed the finding of assault two days ago on May 27th, he wrote a letter to the First Baptist Church of Woodstock congregation that stated, quote, It was during that summer that I allowed myself to get too close to a compromising situation with a woman who is not my wife, Given our relationship with the SBC and First Baptist Woodstock, the elders of Shaliford decided that we must publicly recognize the impact of this situation on our church, on the church in general, our congregation, and our pastoral staff. We grieve with the victims of sexual abuse within and outside the church. We support public accountability for people who commit sexual abuse in the church. 
and we recognize that our larger community across multiple counties here in Georgia, as well as throughout the nation, will go through a grieving process. There are at least five different groups of people who've been impacted by the events described in the sexual abuse task force report. First, they're the people who've been victims of sexual abuse, regardless of whether the abuse took place in the church. Beyond the abuse itself, often these people have been inappropriately blamed, shamed, or intimidated into silence. Second, there are the, the people whose trust has been betrayed by the perpetrators. Sometimes the burden of the betrayal destroys people's faith in Christ or drives them from service and ministry. Next, there are the leaders who fail to provide accountability as described in 1 Timothy 19, 5, 19, and 20. These people are feeling shame right now. The fourth category is the perpetrators, who may either be accepting the reality of what is described in the report, or more likely, attempting to spin the report as they struggle with some form of denial. Our challenge with them is to, is to confront, encourage reconciliation, and restoration over time. The fifth group is the pastors and counselors who've been counseling the betrayed this week and will continue to carry this burden for months to come. And finally, there are congregations who received disillusioned church members from churches where, church abu where abuse has occurred and covered up for years. So how does all of this affect Shaliford? Our shared history with First Baptist Church of Woodstock means that many of our members know some of the people involved in the sexual abuse task force and therefore are working through various feelings of betrayal or are counseling those who are grieving. We may also receive visitors from First Baptist Woodstock as they process their grief. And we must be gentle, listen, and provide safety to them. And finally, we must acknowledge the counseling burden that's being placed on Johnny and Carrie Day, Matthew and Jessica Roy, and other members of the congregation who serve as counselors. This week was an extremely challenging week of counseling as people at First Baptist Woodstock processed the task force report. So what is Shaliford Church doing to protect our congregation? So the last thing I'd like to share with you this morning is that the elders of Shaliford have already taken key actions to protect our congregation, starting with how we structured our bylaws. We established a plurality of elders leadership model. While the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message states that the scriptural offices of the church are bishops or elders and deacons, in 1963, this was changed to its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons in recognition of the large number of Baptist churches that have a solo pastor as elder leadership model. Our assessment of the history of Shaliford showed that with a single pastor as elder leader model, each time there was a pastoral change, the church descended in a crisis. And therefore, we established a plurality of elders model which we believe is more consistent with the text of the New Testament, 
We also specified that a majority of elders must be congregational, that is, non-staff elders, just like Paul and Barnabas did in Acts 14 when they appointed elders in every church. Elders are also regularly affirmed by the congregation. Uh, Congregational elders must also periodically take a one-year sabbatical away from the ministry in order to provide diversity among the leadership. These provisions protect the congregation from the concentration of leadership in a single individual. Our bylaws also include a process for confronting sin in the leadership through Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. By codifying these processes into our bylaws, the congregation has the tools to hold its leaders publicly accountable, as Paul wrote to Timothy. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Finally, please pray for our elders as we discern our role in ensuring public accountability for sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Please join me. Lord, we pray for those who've been harmed by sexual abuse in the church and outside the church. Give us the courage to publicly confront leadership sin when we see it. Give us the humility to accept that everyone needs Jesus, including church leaders. Give us the wisdom to counsel those who have been harmed as well as those who have been betrayed. Help us speak truth and love to the perpetrators, confronting sin yet encouraging reconciliation. And finally, help us cling more closely to you as our only hope of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Lynn, for uh, preparing and reading that. And we did have um, a long elders meeting on Wednesday night about that, and it was difficult. And in the same way that last week now seems prophetic um, to preach that, to talk about that topic in the Sermon on the Mount, this week doesn't feel too different. Because this week we're in Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. So read with me God's word. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Father, we love your word. We are thankful for your word. Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times over the last just couple of years have you thought to yourself or maybe said out loud, I just don't know what to believe. And I'm not talking about big worldview belief changes. I mean news stories, politicians or stories about vaccines or presidential elections. Every day we have stories told to us. And every day we're faced with the question, do I believe this or not? 
Why do we wrestle with that? It's because we know not everyone is truthful. We know not everyone is forthright. We know not everyone is being completely transparent. And so the last couple of years, it really has seemed like a burning question to us. Who do you believe? Maybe you've had conflict with family or with friends. Maybe you've had conflict within the church you've been a part of, this church or another one. Maybe you've had conflict with you and someone else, and there's been a moment in your heart where you had to decide are you going to be honest or not. But this morning from this text, I think what we're going to see is that Jesus frees us to be honest truth-tellers because he sees the truth about us, and he deals with it perfectly. Jesus frees us to be honest truth-tellers because he sees the truth about us, and he deals with it perfectly. Our first point this morning is following in line with all of these sections of the Sermon on the Mount. It's about outer conformity. See, Jesus, all along these last couple sections, has been showing us what the Old Testament law said and then showing us the true direction that that law is pointing to. So it's not just that murder's wrong. It is. But it's also that the root of murder, anger, is a problem within us. And same with lust and adultery same with divorce and now here we see it again with oaths the scribes and pharisees wanted to follow the letter of the law exodus chapter 20 verse 7 says you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain leviticus 19 verse 12 says you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23 verses 21 to 23 say this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you've promised with your mouth. Oaths in God's name were very serious because you were invoking the unchanging, perfectly truthful nature of God to try to secure that you were going to be truthful as well. So to take the Lord's name in vain doesn't just mean to swear using God's word before a cultural curse word. It actually means taking God's name, saying, I'm going to do this in the name of God, I vow it, and then choosing to break your vow. <clears throat> D.A. Carson said that once Yahweh, once God's name was invoked, the vow to which it was attached became a debt that had to be paid to the Lord. So the scribes and Pharisees were teaching that an oath is not binding if it's not technically sworn by God's name. So they created this elaborate system of oaths and vows where you could take an oath that would technically not be in God's name. Take an oath by heaven or by earth or take an oath by Jerusalem or we'll see later in Matthew when he's pronouncing woes in Matthew 23 over the scribes and Pharisees that it was okay if you took an oath on the altar, but not the gold of the altar. And they had all these elaborate systems, as long as they didn't take an oath in God's name, that could be broken. What's the problem with all this? This is classic outer conformity without inner transformation. 
the scribes and Pharisees were perfectly happy to be less than truthful as long as they weren't doing it in God's name. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on this passage of Scripture, says, Oaths cannot compensate for poor character. Oaths cannot compensate for poor character. So the scribes and Pharisees wanted outward conformity. They wanted oaths to bind them to the truth. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the point. That's not the point of taking an oath. But today, we make all kinds of truth claims, right? We, how do you make truth claims today? I'm thinking of things like guarantees, promises, predictions, things that we simply say are going to happen. One primary way we interact with truth is online. We see news headlines and tweets and Facebook posts and Instagram posts every day that are trying to tell us that something is true and something else is not. And one of the main ways I see this happen is in things that no one knows whether it's true or not. They become conspiracy theories. And we begin to post and repost and ask questions. And I've seen confessing Christians post and repost things about politicians and COVID and wars and vaccines and elections and schools and more things that are either obviously a lie or they have no solid founding. Now, when you claim the name of Christ, everything you say also has Christ's name stamped to it. That's the way it works. People say, you're a Christian and you're, you're telling me to believe in this truth of the God of the Bible, but then you're also telling me this thing is true. So what gives? Where's the truth here? Jesus is not just inviting us, though, to outward conformity. The problem with our relationship to the truth uh, is a long problem. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So if we're going to understand why and how we struggle with the truth, why this is so difficult, we need to understand the backstory. That the first sin in Scripture, the time it all went wrong, was when we believed a lie. God, in the first ever counseling session in Scripture, offered counsel to Adam and Eve and said, this tree is not for you, all the rest are. And they had lived for at least some period of time in faithfulness to that story, that true story of the way the world worked and their place in it. But then came the serpent, the evil one. Satan himself comes and offers them another story. Hey, what if God's not telling you the true story of that tree? Did he really say it like this? Now, let me tell you what, if you, let me tell you the real story about this tree. If you take it and you eat, he just doesn't want you to have the blessings that come with it. He's not a good God. He's holding something back from you. And they believed the story of the evil one and turned their back on the story from God. And now every day, we're deceived by lies and we live that same lie, thinking we can be like God on our own and apart from God's good counsel. And then we're tempted to lie and be dishonest because we're not happy with the reality that we're living in. We want a different story. So we're tempted to tell certain kinds of stories, to curate our lives, to make ourselves seem a certain way, to get people to perceive us in a certain way, to get things or protect ourselves or avoid punishment. We're tempted to manipulate reality with our words. to try to do something other than just letting our yes be yes and our no be no. 
But Jesus, like he's been doing, is inviting us to inner transformation. He's pointing us to the true direction of the law. So in this section, he's giving us this true direction that we ought to be people who ooze truthfulness. He's not saying every oath forever is wrong and you should never take one. What he's saying is, as a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't need to take an oath. He's continuing this theme that he started, that we need greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. And he's showing us that if we're going to have that, it's got to begin in our hearts, not just in our outward actions. But we've seen our problem with the truth. So even Jesus telling us, you need to ooze truthfulness. You shouldn't need an oath to be truthful. What do we do? How in the world can we grow to become truthful people who don't need an oath to bind us to the truth, but it's actually who we are, that we're honest with reality and we're not trying to manipulate it. We're not trying to manipulate people's perceptions of us. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is saying if we embrace the truth, we will be set free. Our primary problem is that we think the opposite. If I embrace the truth, all will come crumbling down. It's in this way that this seems almost prophetic for everything Lynn just told you. People cover and cover and cover thinking the truth is going to destroy them rather than set them free. Now the truth will make us deal with reality. But Jesus says if we're willing to deal with that reality, we will be free. We don't need to lie if we embrace the truth. So how do we embrace the truth? Well, John 14, 6 tells us that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we're going to embrace the truth, that's an invitation to embrace the person who is truth, Jesus. Jesus is the truth. We will be freed to be truthful reality embracers if we come to know Jesus because he is the truth. He is the one who made reality. He is the one who knows everything about reality and he's the one who knows your reality. Whoever you think you're lying to, don't think you're lying to Jesus. But not only does Jesus perfectly know reality, he perfectly deals with reality. The good news of the story of God is that God is never fooled about our condition. And that God, as opposed to all the false stories, is the only one who perfectly keeps all of his promises. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 20. Paul says, was I vacillating? Was I going back and forth when, I'm, when I wanted to do this, when I wanted to come and visit you? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, one word, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. He's saying we're not contradicting ourselves, saying to you, yeah, we really want to come see you, and then turning around and saying, no, we really don't have any intention to go see you. No, it wasn't yes and no, but in him, in Christ, it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Jesus, because of Jesus, we don't need to lie to curate our lives. 
We don't need to lie to cover our bad. We don't need to lie to manipulate reality. We'll be free in his grace and love to embrace reality. We'll be free to embrace how he has dealt with reality. We'll be free to reflect God's truth in our own truthfulness. To the good news, what makes us able to be honest about reality is that Jesus has dealt with it. Jesus knows you and the depths of your heart better than you do. And his response to that was to bear a cross, to die a shameful death so that he could come back from the dead proclaiming victory over sin and death and to bring us back to God. And he wants to bring you back to God, the real you. He wants to save you from the real sins in your heart and in your life. He wants to draw near to the real suffering that you're experiencing. He does not want you to pretend like it doesn't exist. He's inviting the real you to come to the real God. Don't we know that that's so difficult in church? Something about walking into this room. We feel the pressure to be something we're not. And we preach a message, or maybe you've heard a message taught, that can be so um, outward conforming. Don't lie. Don't tell lies. Well, is it telling a lie if you're trying to act like you're far more put together than you really are? Look, this doesn't mean everyone needs to know everything. But who's the real friend in your life who does? Have you even been honest enough with God in prayer to pray in some of the most raw ways you see in the Psalms? So honesty, while it begins there with our relationship with God, it begins with the way we're willing to deal with reality or not, it moves on through to acknowledge the fact that Jesus has dealt with our reality. Whether we acknowledge it or not, Jesus is saying, Come on, I know how sinful you are. I know how broken you are. I know how hurting you are. Come to me. Come to me. And then as we come to him, we in our speech, in our lives, in our words, in our character, in the way we present ourselves, in the way we post on social media, don't have to pretend like we are something that we're not. We can be people who ooze the truth rather than people who are coaxed into it by oaths and vows. And that's what Jesus means by be people who let their yes be yes and their no mean no. It means that our word ought to be enough and we don't need oaths. So what does that look like in our everyday lives? Well, at a minimum, it means not lying. Not maliciously saying something that is not true. But it also means to keep our word. That's actually probably more true to the context. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. An oath and a vow was some divine calling on the name of God for some commitment you were going to make. Jesus is saying, when you make commitments, just say yes or no and let your life prove that you mean what you say. So keep our word and be dependable. Count the cost before we commit to something. I think of Luke chapter 14, verses 26 to 33, where Jesus is teaching in the context of discipleship. If anyone comes to me, if anyone wants to come and follow me and be one of my disciples, 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you? He's explaining. He's going to give you a, a little picture, an image here to explain this. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when they've laid a foundation and are not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and, de- and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other's a great way off, he's going to send a delegation, ask for terms of peace. He's giving you two examples here of people who count the cost. That way their yes can mean yes and their no can mean no. If you're going to say, I'm going to build a tower, do you, have a, do you have what it takes to finish the tower you're starting out to build? Or are you going to finish halfway or less because you don't have what it takes? Or a king starting a war, do you, do you have what it takes to start that war? Here's how Jesus wraps this up. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I think one of the primary ways we let our yes be yes and our no be no is in how we follow Jesus. Hypocrisy is a word that is often associated with the church. And the report that came out last Sunday and that Lynn referenced earlier does not help. Because on the one hand, we're saying, yes, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then our actions in private say, no, no, he is not the Lord of my life. I am the king of my world. And I will do what I want, when I want, to whom I want to do it to. That is not letting your yes be yes and your no be no. If you don't want to follow Jesus with your actions, just say it and stop claiming the name of Christ. Jesus is saying, if you are going to be my disciple, be willing to leave everything behind. He's not telling us to proactively go try to cause harm to our father and mother and our wife. I mean, he's not telling us to do that. But what he's saying is, if even the closest relationships you have, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, if they get in the way of you following me, your resolute yes on the table should be so firm that you will even turn your back on them to follow me, the giver of life. That is not an easy word. But if this is true in our discipleship, we need to let our yes be yes in our following Jesus. We also need to let it be true in our relationships, primarily our church relationships. The truth is we don't have what it takes to let our yes be yes on our own. We need Christ's power in us, but we also need relationships. I think we've all probably struggled to commit to relationships at different times. But part of what we long for at Shalford is a healthy, active church membership. And what, a church mem- what church membership is, is saying, I want my yes to be yes to this church. So that as we can, we know we can depend on you. And others in this room and in this church family know they can depend on you. But if you've not let that commitment be made known to Shalford, then what can happen is people go, I, I see you here. I've seen you here for years. I know you're around this church family. I'm just not sure what's tethering you here 
Like, are you going to leave next week? Can I depend on you to open up my soul and pour out the depths of the honesty about who I am? Are you someone that people can do that with in this church? And one way to show that is to join the church and become a church member. As a show of commitment to say, I want to belong here, and if you choose to open up to me as a deep spiritual friend, I am not going to walk out anytime soon. If we hope to get to the place of being honest about who we are, we need relationships where we can be honest like that. Because if we're constantly wondering if somebody's going to walk out on us when we open our mouths, we'll never open our mouths. But to be people who let our yes be yes and our no be no means we set our face to following Jesus, intending to never turn back, intending for our whole life to be committed to him. And it means we bring relationships in where we can be honest. Be honest about how we're falling short of that. (laughs) Be honest about the kind of help and prayer we need to do that. But the only way we can be honest about our reality is if we're honest about how Jesus has already dealt with it and he already knows it. I think about Psalm 139 to wrap up this morning. Psalm 139 begins and ends in a wonderful way. It begins by saying, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. I mean, definitively, you have done this. He goes on to say, you know when I sit, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts, you search out my path, my lying down. You have searched me and known me wholly and completely. And then Psalm 139 ends with a prayer in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Begins with a definite truth. You have searched and known, and it ends with a prayer repeating that truth. Would you search me and know me again? We will never even know ourselves the way that God knows us. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, that means we're not followers who are afraid of reality. Because Christ knows it. He knew exactly what was in our heart when he chose to carry the cross for you. He knew exactly the sins of your life. He knew exactly the wounds you would experience when he chose to get down in the muck with you and say, come to me. How do we honor what he's done for us? Not just by drumming up some emotional highs as we sing exciting celebratory songs, but we honor what Christ has done for us by being honest about why he needed to do it. And I pray that we would be a church that finds that our honesty is met with honor, as I've heard another pastor say that we can honor one another in our honesty, find friends that we can bear our soul to. Whatever happens in our church family programmatically, whatever you find yourself being involved in, groups and serving and teams and ministries, and I, we have those and they're great. What would it look like over the next couple months if you found a deep friend that you could be this honest with? 
That's, that's really where the life is. And that's my prayer for you. That we wouldn't just be bound by oaths to outward conformity, but we'd be people who ooze truthfulness because we're not afraid of the reality that Jesus has redeemed. Let's pray. God, we really don't want to deal with reality because we, we know a little bit of our own mess. We try to ignore most of it. And we're scared that our mess would be met with condemnation. Jesus, give us the courage. Give us the assurance that our mess will be met with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The truth about reality is not that we're in the valley of the shadow of death alone. And when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to try to make our lives look like we're in a much better place on some mountaintop somewhere. We can be honest about being in that valley and then we find that you are there with us, God. Jesus, I pray that as we follow you, our yes would be yes. And we would be so resolute in wanting our yes to be yes and following you that we wouldn't want any area of our lives to be untouched by you. So we open our hands today to those things we've been clinging to, holding on to, not wanting to let go of, not wanting you to have full authority over. Because while we've said yes to the good things that we know you bring, we're not sure about saying yes to everything. But Jesus, I pray that you pry our fingers off the stuff we think we can carry with us into the kingdom. And help us to find that no matter what we give up here, we'll receive, in your words, Jesus, a hundredfold in the kingdom. We will receive immeasurably more from you if we're willing to give up the stuff we're clinging to here. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna come to the Lord's table this morning and celebrate his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And so if you know Christ, this is a time for you to celebrate exactly what he has done for you. That his body was broken for you on the cross, his blood was shed for you, and that three days later he walked out of the tomb defeating your sin and the eternal death that you deserved. So I pray if you know Jesus that this morning, this would be a celebration. This would be a relief that you don't have to provide what Jesus has already provided. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, this is your invitation. To stop trying to do and to fix and to cover what Christ has already done for you. So this morning, you are invited to come to know Jesus and place your faith in him simply by admitting that you need him and in prayer telling him please save me so as we take the lord's table it's going to be a moment of silence i'd invite you to come we have three stations here at the front uh, take the bread and take the cup and then return to your seat i'm going to pray for us before we do this and then after everyone's taken we'll sing one last song together jesus we do this in remembrance of you that you really were and really are a human being with real scars to prove what you've been through for us. I pray that we would receive your grace as we take the bread and the cup this morning. And that our bodies, if they seem like they're failing, we can take this and remember that your body failed ultimately and then came back to life. And that's our hope too.
And if we feel guilt and shame this morning, we can see this cup and remember your blood that you paid to cover our guilt and to welcome us home from shame. We love you. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.